0: This is Fundraising Radio, and today's a guest speaker, we have Sam Nagar, CEO at Big Silm, that raised $15 million and was recently acquired by Siemens. And in this episode, we'll talk about so many super exciting topics. And the major topic is how to get first customers in, because Sam's company, Pixium, was actually doing really big uh, deals. So each deal was about $1 million or more. And we'll talk about how a young, you know, early-stage company can acquire large customers that can afford to pay such sums of money. And, of course, we'll talk about this acquisition. And, by the way, small uh, spoiler alert, it's epic. <laughs> so, Sam, let's kick off by you, giving us a background on yourself and on Pixium. Sure. Thanks for having me.
1: Um, so, I'm Sam Nagar. I'm the former CEO of Pixium. Um now working at Siemens with the rest of my acquired company. Uh, before starting the company, I actually did work as an engineer at Microsoft, um, spent some time up in Seattle, uh, originally grew up in the Northeast. And a real short summary of the, the Pixium adventure, we, we uh, grew to about a hundred people or so, a little over a hundred people. And uh, we're reach, we reached about 24 and a half million in annual revenue and took us about six years to do so. So it was uh, quite a journey and uh, happy at how everything turned out.
0: Right, I mean, you got acquired successfully, so I hope you're happy with the results. But let's, can you describe Pixum a little bit more so that people, you know, have understanding of uh, how the model works? Sure, yeah. So
1: we were one of the early pioneers in a concept called edge computing. Where instead of running applications and workloads in a central data center, uh, like something maybe you'd leverage from Amazon or Microsoft, uh, the idea is you know we would encounter customers that had a lot of distributed infrastructure. Think you know like fast food chains, for example, that had in every single location a, a couple of servers in the back room, and managing all of this distributed infrastructure at scale was a significant challenge. Um, especially without having to send people out there to make changes, perform maintenance, uh, or you know, upgrade software. And so it, to put it simply, we made a software solution that made that easy to do. A, a dashboard and uh, a, a bit of software you, you embedded into all the different infrastructure, and it just made it so that with one click you could make a change at scale to you know, thousands of systems, um, which would save a lot of these customers uh, millions of dollars, depending on, you know, the number of changes they wanted to make in a year. Um, and so some of our background that you know, we leveraged to do so, uh, our team had previously worked at Microsoft, just like me and VMware, a lot of virtualization and cloud experience came in, into play.
0: That's really interesting and hard for a financial person to understand. But uh, I think you did a good job describing it. So hopefully our listeners understand that as well. But before we move on to you talking about acquiring customers, because in that case, it sounds really complicated. I first wanted to touch on to something that really interests me personally. So you started a company, you started Pixion with your sister, right? How did that affect your fundraising process or uh how did that affect your business in general? Would you recommend, you know, working with your relatives on a startup or should you refrain from doing that? Great question. And uh, I think that's definitely
1: a, a controversial topic for sure. Yep. Um, I, I don't know if there's blanket advice for that. I think there is there's some element of it being case by case with my sister and I, we already had a very good dynamic. Even growing up, we, we rarely fought. Uh, there was a lot of confidence from both of us going into it that we'd be able to work very well together. And I think that may not apply to some other siblings or other types of relatives. Um, but when it came time to fundraise, you know, I, I'm sure a lot of your listeners can sympathize with this. We actually got rejected pretty extensively in the early days. And. Mm-hmm. It's sometimes looking back on it, it's still hard to say why. Um, I think part of it was definitely an element of, of it being that you know it was two relatives working together. We did get that feedback when we pushed some of the investors for you know some reason into you know why we were constantly getting rejected. Um, one of them did did say, yeah, look, we we avoid investing in any any company that you know the founders and the chief executives are are related. Mm -hmm. um and you know there was there was other elements too you know we we were operating in a space that was still new territory we uh you know the in general most of the investments uh from vcs at the time were being made towards centralized infrastructure like cloud-based companies instead of um (laughs) you know i would go into offices and and try and tell some of these vcs that look you know i get that the cloud is very popular now but maybe we don't want to put everything in the cloud and uh, you know, usually that wasn't met with great responses at the time. Um, you know, we, we had a pretty controversial business model. We didn't charge recurring, uh, you know, subscription-based revenue. Um, and I think that also didn't command the multiples and, you know, especially like the exit multiples, right? When the, the VCs are thinking that through, um, you know, and, and just, in, oh, uh, uh, the, uh, I forgot to mention this. All of our early customers were also outside the U.S. Um, <laughs> And I, that was one of the feedbacks we got, too, was why are you guys going after customers outside the U.S.? The U.S. is the biggest market. Um, mm-hmm. You guys don't even have boots on the ground. Um, you know, in some of these countries, our first customer was Samsung out in Korea. Our second customer was Vodafone out in the U.K. And it was definitely a challenge. I mean, I, I'm not trying to dismiss some of the criticism or some of the feedback we got. It, it certainly was, you know, a, I, I felt a difficult task to do so, but we were up for it. And I think having my sister alongside was a big part of why we were able to
0: execute. Right, absolutely. I'm uh, more of a believer that you know siblings can work together in most of the cases. But before we move on to the topic of uh, acquiring large customers, so as you mentioned, you got one of your first customers were Samsung. Uh, before going to that topic, I was going to ask you, so did you raise a dent in the beginning of your uh, venture, or did you only raise money at the very end before getting acquired?
1: oh yeah so in in our early days because we weren't getting much vc traction um in fact our you if you ever google our company you'll see some of the evolution of it we actually did a pivot um, in our early days we originally wanted to sell a, a hardware box itself with our software included um, and because we were selling this piece of hardware we decided to go to Kickstarter. So you may find that online if you ever Google it. we were very young at the time. I was 23. My sister was 21, just you know, coming out of college. Um, and uh, we did get 75k from the Kickstarter, and we ended up, you know, shipping that product. But very quickly after the Kickstarter, um, maybe I remember we did the Kickstarter in, in January uh, 2014. Um, really by May, you know, within a few months. Uh, we were approached by our first larger customer, Samsung, and they played a big influence on us um, by kind of whispering to us a little bit, saying, hey, look, why are you guys making hardware? Uh, you know, we're Samsung. We're making the hardware, but we do need your software. Are you open to licensing that? We'll give you a you know, big customer contract. Um, and that helped us sustain ourselves despite not
0: getting the VC
1: funding. And then, you know, as we started getting traction and growing uh, organically, we ended up not needing it mm
0: mm-hmm. it. God, that's that's a quite success. So how how did this happen that Samsung approached approached you instead of reverse? Uh, actually, it was uh, as far as
1: I'm aware, uh, from what they've told me, uh, it was actually the Kickstarter. Oh, yeah. So it was a
0: success at the end.
1: Yeah, they. Uh, I think they keep an eye out on you know, pot- especially potential new consumer products or you know, kind of small business products because that's you know, big big business for them. Um, and you know, they saw that there was some traction, you know, we've had barely put any money into, you know, marketing or anything like that. A lot of it was word of mouth anyways, even from the Kickstarter. Um, and that they actually reached out to us through that and said, look, you know, we, we like what you're doing. Um, at the time they were looking at getting more into, uh, at, at the time, I, I don't know if you remember a company called smart things they'd acquired to try and get into IOT and, and more stuff to be deployed in the home from a service perspective. Um, and so they were looking at, you know, some of the stuff we'd built in our early days, but primarily the software, which could enable that. Um, and so they, they approached us said, look, you know, well, we want to license this. We know it, it's not really your business model. We're not interested in buying your hardware because we can make our own. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, we weren't getting VC money. So I actually we, we, we got some pretty good advice that I still remember to this day um, that it's 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 easier to convince a customer to give you a dollar than it is to give to convince a VC to give you a dollar and I still believe that's true to this day
0: I'm not hundred percent sure that's true but <laughs> well, being for that so far but I was wondering you mentioned that you got rejected like many times, and you didn't really have a reason. You didn't understand why you got rejected so many times. I'm curious. Can you like approximate how many times you got rejected by VC? <laughs> yeah, sure.
1: Uh, uh, somewhere in between. Let's see. I, I think I would do at least at least a, let's say four to five VC meetings a week, oh, uh, yeah. or we'll call it phone, at least a phone call. Right? Maybe not a, a meeting itself. Um, times let's say a few months even after the Samsung contract we were still trying to do it I mean this was at least a year so I'd peg it at least 250 rejections Um, like five times 50 weeks or so right
0: (laughs) that's very impressive that's extremely impressive you know that's what defines a startup founder after you get first hundred rejections you just keep pushing it. After you get 250 rejections, then you should probably think, am I doing something wrong?
1: <laughs> it wears you down.
0: <laughs> yeah, I can and, imagine that. Yeah. <laughs> but I was wondering, how do you manage to get so many, uh, actual meetings and calls with the investors? So one of the problems, especially with the earlier stage founders, have no experience, no networks in the field. How do you get this initial meeting? How do you get in touch with the investors? Oh, the biggest thing, for,
1: and I still hold by this to this day, is, is LinkedIn. Um, it seems like it might be a little expensive paying. I think it's it, at the time it was like 70 or $80 a month. Maybe it's a little more now. Um, you pay for the premium LinkedIn uh, account, and then you can send a message to anybody. And mm-hmm. this works for both VCs. It works for even journalists if you're trying to get some coverage um, for, you know, whatever announcement you're making as a company. Um that worked big time for us. And I totally milked that Samsung contract. (laughs) Like I would tell in the message, like the first thing I'd write is, you know, Sam's we we got a, you know, a nice contract with Samsung product. (laughs) And I think that was at least enough for them to
0: say, okay, at least let's take a meeting with them. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Nice. 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 And were you actually doing this by hand? So were you actually manually going through some lists? Where do you find investors to reach out to? Do you just search on LinkedIn? Like, Venture capital, or yep. what was the strategy? Go to the, go to the search bar,
1: type in venture capital, and, mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of people can, a lot of my friends that are, you know, founders and CEOs, I found that they're a little picky sometimes, and they'll say, uh, you know, we don't want to talk to associates, right? Like, filter out based mm-hmm. on, you know, whoever's, uh, the term is, you know, like, managing director, or, you know, I think, a partner, or whatever, right? I, I'm not as familiar, right? I didn't get much funding, so... Um, <laughs> But uh, I I know some people are really picky, but it really didn't matter to me. I was hoping that, you know, maybe even through the associates, even through, you know, even like the (laughs) assistant to to the, you know, partner would maybe kind of, you know, point point them towards me and I'd just be messaging everybody. It wasn't just me. I'd actually share my account credentials with my sister. Uh, We did have someone in the early days who's, you know, trying to help us uh, with a little bit of marketing here and there. Um, Uh And she also had my account credentials and we had kind of a standard <laughs> message we would send out. And, and it was just us three, you know, to in any given day, just sending out as many as we could. And I, I actually, I, I have to give VCs credit where credit is due. I think they are pretty good about taking meetings and at least giving you a chance if, you know, you give them an articulate message mm-hmm. and there's something for them to hang their hat on. And I think the Samsung deal helped. Uh, I think writing them a proper message instead of just, I have an idea. Like, I mean, show, Like we made sure to tell them, look, we have a product It's not just, you know, like something we've drawn on a napkin kind of thing.
0: Like there was some elements where we thought through the message a little bit too. Mm -hmm. That's really nice. And by the way, some advice from me personally, I recently interviewed an associate in a US based fund and probably it's actually a good idea to try to reach out to associates first because if they like you, they will push your deal to the managing director and they will definitely listen to the associate, especially in a... You no, know, in a small uh, VC firm, so probably it's not such a best strategy. Uh, but here I wanted to touch on to why do you decide on this business model? Why do you decide to sell a license instead of charging a, uh, you know, instead of choosing a regular SaaS model?
1: Also, great question. Um, <clears throat> so it was mostly a personal decision. I personally don't like subscriptions. Uh, <laughs> I like it just every time I cringe a little bit when I want to pay for something and I and they expect (laughs) me to pay them, you know, per month. And that was really the main reason. There's really nothing wrong with a subscription model from my perspective. We probably could have done it. Um, That being said, after we went with that decision and we went to market with it, I think that was a big reason for us getting customers, especially the customers we did. Um, We found that over time our customer base tended to skew a little bit more towards. Like industrial customers, retail customers, um, ones that aren't that interested in paying subscriptions. Like mm-hmm. if we were selling in other verticals, especially like for example, selling to a telecommunications company, right? Let's just for argument's sake, let's say like you know, I don't know, uh, Comcast was a customer of ours, or or uh, any telecommunications or or you know, internet provider. They're already charging their customers. Um, uh, you know, monthly fee and all that. So it, it does fit in well to their business model and they can a, a compensate for that and make sure they're not losing their margins on it, especially if they're paying us for something. Um, but especially like in the in, in Siemens, for example, right? Like they'll sell, uh, just think of like an H, do you know, HMI panel, a human interface panel, or just think of like factory equipment maybe, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's a one-time expense. Right. They're not charging, you know, per month for that. And so... Every time they sign, think of signing someone up, um, you know, that is a consideration they have to think about is, okay, what is the impact on the margins of, of products that are sold, right?
0: Right, right, right. And you mentioned that, you know, you switched to more of an industrial, uh, industrial customers. I'm wondering, you got acquired, I mean, you, you got first customers, Samsung, reaching out to you themselves. They helped you a lot, et cetera. But how do you acquire the rest of them? Do you actually hire a salesperson to reach out to those big uh, companies or do you do it yourself? And how do you do this? Was it oh, LinkedIn yeah.
1: <laughs> That's, I think, I'm glad you asked that question because I think most startups should have some plan for this. Um, you know, for us, we never had a, a sales org. We didn't have any anyone we hired for sales until literally like the last three months of our company's oh. lifetime. Um, it was mostly me as someone in house. Um, and even if you look at the composition of our team, um, you know, hundred plus people, but almost all of the team was engineers. Ooh. Um, and you know, when you grow organically and, and you don't get the VC funding upfront, um, every dollar you get from customers matters a lot. And mm-hmm. so. It's, you know, as opposed to if you do the fundraise, you have a pre-allocated budget for everything, right? You, know, you get some money for marketing, some money for, you know, increasing your headcount for engineering, all of that. Um, for me, I never knew when I'd get my next dollar. Um, <laughs> and so I decided, and this was at the time a risk, right? I, in hindsight, obviously it, it worked out, but at the time there was no way to tell if this would work out. So I, de- I decided I would go all in on making sure the product was a killer product that that there was nothing wrong with it there was no bugs with it that you know if I could get it in the hands of the right person they would love it mm-hmm. um, and so I put all my money into engineering and I would do all the sales but it, it's it's a bit of a, a misconception to say I was the only sales force of the company uh, we actually leveraged channel partners very heavily um, and this where we first figured this out, was um, back in late late maybe late 2016, early 2017, um, I don't know if you how familiar you are in the edge computing space, but basically you had all these uh, cloud providers like Microsoft Azure and Amazon AWS, uh, they started introducing their first edge offerings um, And at the time Google Cloud who's still doing a great job you know trying to catch up and, and you know capture that market share in the cloud, uh, they didn't have any edge offerings. And uh-huh. so we, I happened to meet the, I think the right person at the right networking event. And I really, I recommend to all, all startup founders who listen to your channel, like go to as many events as you can, um, you know, aside, you know, that doesn't sacrifice, you know, actually executing the company. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, it just ended up being a, a, a nice fit for both of us where they needed an edge offering. And even for us, like, When you're talking about running infrastructure in a facility, that's a finite number of resources. And so if a customer of ours ran out of capacity, they needed to think about what happens. Then either they buy more or they potentially offload to the cloud. Um, Mm -hmm. And so we had a conversation with Google and we partnered together. And um, them as a channel partner, basically what ended up happening was, I started doing some webinars and I started spending a lot of time and I invested a lot of time in building relationships with their sales force, the Google cloud sales guys, um, and showing them what we could offer. And if, you know, especially if since they were getting a lot of their customers asking, you know, hey, what are you guys doing for edge? Uh, You know, why should I go with you over, you know, Amazon or Microsoft? Mm -hmm. Uh, If I made those sales folks aware that, you know, hey, we're a Google partner you know, include us in the conversation or mention that, hey, look, you know, you're not left without a key piece to be able to challenge your competitors. Um, That worked out a lot. And then the sales team, they actually did start looping us in. I'd start getting emails. You know, at first it was a little bit sporadic. Um, It went from, you know, maybe once every few weeks to suddenly we were getting, you know, a a handful a week to, you know, 10 plus a week um, Mm -hmm. all over the world. I mean, customer Google's, you know, trying to get traction all over the place. And that became a force multiplier for us. We went from less than, you know, a million and a half in revenue suddenly to five million plus in like a quarter Um, and and it just it kept multiplying for us. And then we realized we could repeat this with Google and it wasn't just, you know, with cloud provider. Obviously, you know, Microsoft and Amazon had less reason to partner with us. but some of the hardware and components guys, Intel became the next big one for us, um, you know, where they, of course, want to push more of, of their products and their silicon. And and the more you run on premise, the more applications you run, the more Intel stuff you know a customer is going to buy. <laughs> um, and Intel then became our next partner. And we, we started growing substantially from that. Um, and we found that if we found the right channel partners, their sales force effectively would become our sales force if, You know, a sale of our product resulted in a sale of their product.
0: Right. That's a really interesting model. So can we go just a little bit deeper into what a channel partner is? So how can we look into Google uh, again? So I didn't quite understand that. I hope I'm not the only one who is not uh, misunderstanding this. So how this works is that you approach Google. They are missing a piece of... uh, and by the way, I have zero understanding of what Edge edge is. Nope. <laughs> <Literally. Okay. laughs> so what I understand is that sometimes customers get too much on their Google Cloud and they want to offload some of it to an actual hard drive, right? Uh,
1: not necessarily. Just sometimes um, they may want to, because in order to get everything up to the cloud, um, there's basically you have one internet pipe, right? Um, uh-huh. There's going to be a lot of data you want to send up to the cloud. Um, but sometimes if the Internet's not there or if you just want something that has better, like more performance or lower latency, right? And maybe it's like in a factory, for example, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if the Internet goes and you're relying on the cloud to, to automate or just give you insights and process a lot of your data, your factory could go down if you're oh, really relying okay. on the cloud. Um, so basically, a lot of these people are saying, well, Google, I love your cloud, but we don't really have an option if our Internet connection is not working and we can't use mm-hmm. the cloud. Um mm-hmm. And so that's where we came in. We gave them ways to leverage some resources in the facility instead of outside the facility.
0: Got it. All right. Now I understood that. And I don't want to go too deep into that. So let's move on to the last part of the fundraising before you got acquired. So right before you got acquired, uh, not quite right before you got acquired, but about a year before you got acquired, you raised $15 million and, uh, Why did you decide to raise that? What happened there?
1: Yeah, actually that's also a fun story too. I'll try not to spend too much time on it because I, <laughs> I can spend forever on that. It's, it's a really fun story. Um, but, you know, we started growing very quickly um, and collecting a lot of revenue. And, and it was actually a challenge for us because of of our team composition, like I alluded to earlier. We were all engineers and we were a little reliant on channel partners. and, and mm-hmm. And suddenly, you know, we we had all this this money we had, you know, customer money that we were collecting revenue. Um, and we started getting approached by potential acquirers actually around the time we raised in 2008. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were thinking about exiting um, at the time with the offers coming in were pretty compelling. Um, but then uh, whatever it was, uh, <laughs> We got some intros from uh, at the time Intel, who was one of our big channel partners, uh, to Intel Capital, their venture arm. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, I have to give a lot of credit to uh, my the one who invested in us from Intel Capital. Her name is Elena Leon, um, phenomenal, phenomenal um, investor, probably one of the VCs I've met, and I, as you've heard, I've met a lot of them, and I have I think the most respect for her of, of of pretty much any VC, um, and, you know, she she talked to me about it and she said, you know, Sam, um, I understand, you know, you're thinking of exiting. Um, in case you want, I know, and, and I think she she recognized, right, that I, I, I had a lot of frustration from in the past from not being able to raise, um, mm-hmm. you know, she said, look, if you want it, there is an option here for Intel Capital to come in if, you know, and you can take the exit. I'm sure, you know, you'd be very happy with that too um but just in case you want to you know play with a full deck of cards for once um intel capitals here and i'm i'm certain we will we'll be able to get you an investment us you know assuming you're not you know obviously you don't do something stupid so to speak right uh uh-huh. <laughs> um, <you> know, <laughs> and she was pretty confident it w- it would like this could go through and i decided to take a chance and i said all right look if you go through with the process if you get me a term sheet i'll take it and mm-hmm. i'd already i didn't have much faith in vcs at the time right so <laughs> i said her, "Like you give me you get me the term sheet you finish your process then then uh, uh, but you have my word i'll take it if you can do it um and so she did and she went and she championed for me in intel and she she got me the term sheet she got me I'd say 90% of the terms I wanted. Of course, you know I think as a CEO you can never get everything you want, mm-hmm. uh, but I was very happy with with the deal that that you know they structure we structured together with Intel Capital, and that was really the message she gave me: is look, play with a full deck of cards. Like the same concept I told you earlier, right? Like you could have a preset budget for everything now for the first time, uh-huh. uh, and and so you know she basically said, you tell me how much you want, and I of course also was. I mean, I, I also wasn't sure how much I actually did want because we already were making a lot of money too. <laughs> and so the 15 was kind of just uh, like a number I decided on. It wasn't, oh no. <laughs> there, there wasn't really as much logic to it as it was like, okay, you know, th- I want to double my, my engineering team because I, I think I, they could build their product twice as good. And, you know, I, I think I, I you know I want to take a chance on, you know, these expenditures and all that. Um, I didn't actually end up spending that much of the money after all. Um, (laughs) But uh, it was something I just said, look, if I'm if I feel I want to play with a full deck, this is what I think a full deck looks like, you know, and if you can make this deal happen, you have my word, I'll accept this deal.
0: That's really interesting and sounds really inspiring for those people who are trying to raise money right now, you know, just yeah. and and here we're moving on to the last part of this fundraising process, which is acquisition by Siemens. And in our pre-interview colleague said that you basically retain most the largest part of the share, even after, you know, raising this $15 million. How did you how did you manage to do this?
1: Yeah, so that was also, I think, a result of the circumstance. If we had taken money in our early days, I don't think we would have had that option. Um, now, you know, when Elena and Intel Capital came in, um, you know, I had been so <laughs> jaded, I think, by the fundraising process and you know, all <laughs> of that, that uh, I, I basically I basically told her, I said, look, if if this is going to work, you know, I want a mechanism where... You know, I we can build trust. And, you know, if if things aren't working out, I don't want to be stuck with you guys forever, basically, Mm -hmm. Um, you know. And I think this should also be hopefully a philosophy on your side, too, where, you know, if you feel it's not working out, you're also not stuck with us. Um, And so we ended up structuring it as a convertible note. I had gotten some feedback from you know another founder that I'm very close with. Um, that, you know, this is an option. Of course, you know, someone who doesn't raise often, it's, you know, it's, it's new territory, right? Um, mm-hmm. But we ended up doing a convertible note and we, you know, we had basically, a, a, for anyone who doesn't know what a convertible note is, I, I assume your reader or your, uh, your audience probably probably has some idea, but just in general, it's, you get a, effectively, it, it counts as a loan that you're not paying back every month, but eventually it'll convert into equity after a certain period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the end, you get the option. we structured it such that both of us had to agree if we wanted to convert. Um, it had to be mutual. and mm-hmm. that was something I was insistent on at the time. Um, and so she you know, she agreed and you know of course we there was some terms in there that also of course protected Intel. so you know, it wasn't a totally one-sided deal either. Um, but the the fact of the matter was that you know we had to either do a raise, Uh, like a full like series round um, or um, uh, a certain period of time passes, right? And then we mutually Mm -hmm. decided to convert. Um, But then um, back six months ago, a little bit more than six months ago, um, we started getting a lot of acquisition interest again. um, And this time it was even more companies that wanted to acquire us. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I had a chat with, of course, Elena and Intel Capital. I said, look, here's what's going on. I am thinking of of exiting again. I think the the offers that we're expecting to see are just something we can't ignore. Um, Mm -hmm. And and in this case, it would be before you convert. Um, You'll you'll get an acquisition premium, but you know, this is—is this something you're okay with? And they were super supportive. They said, "You know, Sam, we understand. um, You know, we want you to make the best decision for your company. We're not—we're not trying to come in and you know take over your company." If you feel mm-hmm. it's the right decision, you know, we're of course going to get our acquisition premium and we'll, we'll make a nice return on it. Um, you know, so we, we support you in either, whatever you want to do. And, you know, if, if you want to raise again, we're happy to support you in that too. Um, they were really phenomenal in it. And, you know, we actually had another investor to um, Lisa Lambert from national grid. By this point, you know, she, she's also another person I, I respect above all in the, in the VC community. Um, and she was also extremely supportive both ways. And, and she said, and she actually joined the round with Intel, the, the 15 rounds,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and same thing. She said, I support you, whatever you want to do. Um, and so we decided to, the, the deal was just uh, too good. So we decided it, it, it made sense. And um, everybody seems happy, <laughs> even the investors, <laughs> uh, but it just it worked out that way that the cap table at the end was just the
0: founders. That's epic. And, oh, I'm curious. How much, so it's founders, and also I'm assuming uh, you gave out some options to your employees, right? How much, that's the question that I get pretty frequently. How much should you give out to those early employees that are like at least the founding team?
1: Yeah, so I'll, I'm just going to honor confidentiality on this, but uh, I'll at least say I think standard everybody should expect to give is at least 10% of an employee pool. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, just in general, to just honor
0: everybody's privacy, I'll avoid commenting on that. But Absolutely. Yeah. Definitely. I, I respect that, Norris. And yeah, I think that 10 to 15% of stock option pool for employees is the, the standard one. So keep that in mind, guys. And we're moving on to the last two questions they asked, too all my investor speakers and successful founders as a successful founder, do you, who exited his company, you know, who sold pretty successfully his company. Do you do any advisory or actually angel investment roles now?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. And I encourage, you know, you or anybody else listening to this to reach out to me. I, I, I think, you know, one thing for me, just having the unique experience that I had, um, I, I would love to, you know, give back in in different ways, right? Whether that is advice or, you know, especially if there's something I view as, is, is a you know potentially good investment, mm-hmm. um, that I believe in, you know, how the CEO might be operating. Please, you know, feel free to reach out. I, I look forward to it.
0: I will actually leave a link. So after the call, we will decide uh, whichever channel is best to reach out to Sam, and I will leave that link in the description of this episode. So, if you want to talk to Sam. Uh, Check the description. And last question for you, Sam. uh, Call-to-action thing. So recently I started doing this small call-to-actions to to my listeners. What's that one thing that you want the listener to do as soon as the episode is over? Oh, good question.
1: I'd say sign up for a LinkedIn Pro account. That is, I think, the single best decision i made. I'm not I don't work for LinkedIn for the record. <laughs> but <laughs> it, there's strange. a lot of value you got
0: you get from it and I, I to this day i still see value. That's a perfect advice and I love it. I love the whole episode. I think that in the beginning I actually under promoted it when I was, you know, saying that the story is epic. I think the story is more than epic. Wonderful, wonderful insights. So much fun. So much, you know, interesting stories there. So thanks a lot, Sam, for coming up for to fundraising radio and actually sharing your experience with other founders. Really appreciate it, and I'm pretty sure the listeners will
1: appreciate it as well. Sounds great. Thank you so
0: much.